0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: December fourteenth, 2012, was supposed to be a line in the sand. The school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, where a lone gunman armed with an assault rifle killed 26 people, 20 of them schoolchildren between the ages of 6 and 7. Never again is what we heard back then. That was nine years ago.
2: In some way, there's this hope that it'll get a little bit easier each year. And the sad truth is it it does not. It actually is getting worse each year.
1: Nicole Hockley lost her son Dylan in the Sandy Hook shooting. Camille Paradis was in the third grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School that day. Today, she is understandably angry.
3: I'm told we will never forget you. And yet it seems as if the government has. Because I've watched it happen again and again and again. And every single time it brings me back to sitting in the fire station waiting for my parents to pick me up. This week
1: on 880 In Depth, the fight to protect our kids from gun violence in schools. Nine years after that terrible day.
4: The years since have seen one horrible mass shooting after another, Congress still has done nothing.
1: Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheldt. According to the publication Education Week, there have been 32 school shootings this year, 24 of them since August. Just last month in Oxford, Michigan, a student killed four people and injured seven others at the high school. For the families of school gun violence, surviving victims and parents of those children who've been killed over the years, this trauma is suffocating.
2: When I hear about shootings, especially um, school shootings, um, I am triggered and a reaction happens within me that takes me right back to twelve, fourteen, and remembering... The moments um, when I discovered my son was dead.
1: Nicole Hockley is the mother of Sandy Hook victim, Dylan Hockley.
2: I, I don't even know how to put it into words, but it's it's a very visceral reaction. Um, sometimes it takes me out for hours, sometimes it takes me out for days. Um, in the case of Michigan, it shifted fairly quickly from uh, trauma to anger, um, because it would appear that what happened in Michigan is practically a a casebook example of what not to do. Um, You know, this is my life's work, is teaching people to recognize the signs and take them seriously and practice safe storage and be responsible gun owners and look out for kids when they ask for help. And it's like everything went wrong there.
1: For our in-depth this week, we connected with Nicole Hockley to talk about an organization she co-founded with other relatives of Sandy Hook victims. It's called Sandy Hook Promise, a national not-for-profit organization dedicated to preventing school shootings. She spoke to our Peter Haskell days after the Sandy Hook anniversary.
2: When I helped launch Sandy Hook Promise, I don't know that I had any other expectations That other than that we would be able to to stop um, school shootings and protect kids from gun violence. Um, I don't think it was immediately evident how we would do that. And we worked initially a lot on legislation, which is what all other gun violence prevention organizations were doing at that time as well. And when background checks failed in April 2013, that's when we realized that we were approaching the problem from uh, the wrong direction and decided to focus on teaching kids um, how to prevent tragedies and and not focus on um, imminent danger, but focus on upstream violence prevention and then policies to support them. Um, So we're really creating long-term, sustainable behavioral change, and that is... That's been our strategy for the last nine years. It's been incredibly successful, but we still have a ways to go because school shootings are still happening. Suicides by firearm are still happening. Um, So our work uh, continues uh, to this day. You
5: know, it's interesting. You decided to move away from the legislative angle. Was it just the feeling that you were banging your head up against the wall? What, What made you decide this was not the way to go?
2: Well, we wanted to focus on things that actually would make a difference. Um, And legislation is incredibly important. However, you can't legislate for behavior. You need to have behavior first and then legislation to enforce it. So we really felt that the traditional gun violence prevention movement was banging their head against a wall and just doing the same thing over and over again without really making any progress And we said, you know, there are different ways to tackle this problem and create movements that save lives now while we still continue to chip away at legislation. And we have seen a lot of legislation movements take place at a state level, at at a federal level, um, around, um, you know, the increase of extreme risk protection orders, background checks in states, safe storage legislation in states. And at a federal level, we've had huge success with different funding streams to to allow for violence prevention programs to take place in schools at no cost. So there is a lot of movement there. But I think unless you're teaching people how to tackle this issue on the ground, in their schools, in their homes, and in their communities, then the legislation won't really make as significant a difference. So yeah, when people when we first started this strategy, there were people who said we were crazy. Um, that we should just use our voices to vote to fight for policy change, and it was like, no, um, there's enough people doing that, and we see gaps, um, and we want to help fill those gaps, and and that's and our strategy has stayed true for nine years. It's working. It's expanding. Um, we've saved a lot of lives so far, and we're going to keep doing this until until school shootings stop
5: one of your goals is to create culture change that sounds difficult how do you do that
2: it's really for us i mean we're not going to change america to um not be a strong gun culture you know that is not our aim whatsoever but for supporting gun owners to be responsible supporting um sellers of firearms to be responsible and do background checks supporting family members when they see a member who might be in crisis to have ways to separate them from lethal means such as firearms Um, that's important to us but behavioral change is also about you know when you see something say something it's about teaching kids to be inclusive and connected um, that when they see something that their friends or peers are doing on social media or on the bus or in the classroom that's worrying or, you know, they might be cutting themselves, or they might be uh, abusing substances, to reach out and get them help, not to assume that someone else will take care of it. We're trying to train a generation to be upstanders rather than passive bystanders. That's going to create a huge difference. One of our first, um, you know, our first approach was modeled on Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the program of designated driver. And that's, that was a very simple program that taught people if you're drinking, you need to have a designated driver. That was something I learned in high school, and my generation has grown up knowing that you need a designated driver. That's behavioral change. You still have people who drink and drive, but a lot less than, than used to. That's a behavioral change. That's a cultural change, and then it's supported and enforced with policies to help ensure that those behaviors stay in place.
5: Part of what you're describing is a program called Know the Signs. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Our Know the Signs programs are are very simple. They can be done within you know one class period at a school or taught within a home environment or after-school organization. Um, there's three real programs there. There's Start with Hello where we teach kids from K to 12, and there's scaffolding, so it's appropriate for different age, um, and, uh, age and grades. Uh, Start With Hello is focused on how do you recognize a sign of someone who's chronically isolated or alone and reach out and create a connection, and just giving kids the tools to practice creating connections, creating inclusion, um, and, and making new friends along the way and, and letting them know that that changes how someone feels, how someone makes next choices, and what they do it creates a more trusting school environment as well we also have our program say something where we teach uh, students how to recognize warning signs of someone who's at risk of hurting themselves or someone else that could be in person that could be in writing that could be on social media and then how to reach out to a trusted adult or to use an anonymous reporting system which is one of our most successful programs we say something anonymous reporting system we also have developed new modules off of, say, something for adults, such as how do you be a trusted adult? How do, you know When a student or a child comes to you and says, I'm seeing this, I'm worried about this person, how do you respond and take appropriate action? And we also launched, um, just before COVID, a suicide prevention module uh, focused on the signs of someone who's ideating on self-harm uh, and suicide and how to create an intervention to get them the help that they
5: need. The anonymous reporting system. How widespread is that, and what have you found?
2: The the anonymous reporting system is very widespread. It's in multiple states right now, including two state partnerships with Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Um, Since launch, uh, there's been around there's been over eighty two thousand tips that have been received Um, about. 10 ish percent of those are life safety which means like imminent danger uh, to someone Um, and it's it's reaching about 3 million students right now we have a lot of plans for expansion a lot of demands for expansion so we're working hard to resource that and get it out there as fast as we can but the sort of tips that are coming in are everything from kids that are being bullied through to kids that are being abused in their home or, or dating violence eating disorders, cutting, all the way up to suicide, which during COVID was our number one tip, um, and school shootings. And and I'm really proud of the fact that um, in the few years since we say something anonymous reporting system has been in action, we have over 2,700 mental health interventions, um, 280 confirmed lives saved, that's like from suicide, and six and we've definitely averted 60 acts of school violence that included a firearm and that includes seven credible school shooting plots so some of those numbers might sound small but when you think that's seven sandy hooks that have been averted that we know of um that's that's a big deal to me
5: there's a generation of kids who have grown up with lockdown drills you know like we had fire drills Mm -hmm. Do you think these things work? Do they do more harm than good? Or or, or is this a a good piece of the puzzle?
2: I think um, people started focusing a lot more on school security uh, and hardening in the aftermath of Sandy Hook. Um, And there are, uh, at the moment, there's little evidence to suggest that lockdowns and active shooter drills actually work uh, there is evidence to suggest that they actually traumatize kids um, we recently put out some positioning statements from um, sandy hook promise that say you know if you're going to do active shooter drills these are the best practices for how to do it how do you choose an organization to work with how do you know that what they do works to not do stim- uh simulations which some schools were you know using you know, BB guns and live pellets to shoot at people or fake blood. And it's like, that is not appropriate. Um, We also think it's more important to train the adults in the event of an active shooter. um, What should adults do to safeguard children rather than make the children go through the drills themselves Um, and never ever to do it in a a simulated environment where someone thinks that it might actually be a real school shooting. Um, So I don't think that I don't think they're going away anytime soon, but I hope that people start focusing on proven programs, evidence-based programs, and uh, you know, ethical and moral suppliers of these programs, um, rather than just you know anyone who puts out a shingle, really, to, to profit off of this. Um, but uh, I think that there's much more evidence around upstream violence prevention and preventing something from
5: happening before it reaches the point of an active shooter situation some of the kids who have grown up with these drills, including kids in Sandy Hook, have become advocates. Mm-hmm. What, what impact do you think they can have? What impact do you hope they can have?
2: Well, I think kids that have lived through active shooters, and unfortunately there are far too many of them now, um, that, those are the voices that we need to be listening to. I don't think parents generally have any idea, unless they're a teacher or an educator, I don't think they have any idea what an active shooter drill is like. They haven't experienced it themselves. I also don't think they necessarily understand the fear of going to school and thinking that you you, you could die. Um, so I think it's really about the voices of people that have experienced this that help me to lead the way to change. Uh, and sadly, there are just um, far, far, far too many shooting victims and survivors, um, that if they all added their voices, it would be um, a bittersweet cacophony. But um, I think that's what needs to happen for superintendents, just district officials, uh, the powers that be, and and Congress to really hear these messages.
5: If I could, I just want to take a couple minutes to talk about your story. Your son Dylan was one of the San Diego victims does the anniversary feel different from year to year? What's this week like for you?
3: Um,
2: yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to um, my, my co-leader here, Mark Barden, a few minutes uh, before this, and we were both agreeing that, in some way, there's this hope that it'll get a little bit easier each year. And the sad truth is, it does not. It actually is getting worse each year. Um, the, the reactions, the triggering, the need to, um, for me, I just have to stay busy because as soon as I stop moving on the day before 12-14, the day of or the day after, then I just, um, I, I, I can't function. So um, it's, you know, my son should be 15 years old now. He should be a sophomore in high school he should be taller than me. He should have acne that we're trying to deal with. He should be perhaps going on a date at some point in there. you know there's so much that he should be doing, and um all I can think about on school fourteen is the horrific um hole that his loss that his uh, that's left in our family, and um just try to recommit every time to. Honor his legacy by, by saving others,
5: and yet it seems the work you do would give you a constant reminder or constant reminders of your loss. How do you do yeah. that?
2: Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and I'll, uh, very honestly, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm, my my DNA is such that I have to focus on making a change, um, and my work is constantly triggering, it's constantly re-traumatizing, and I've, I guess I've just got very thick armor now um, to deal with that, and that's not necessarily healthy either, um, but I know what we're doing is making a difference, so I make the choice to put myself in this situation to know that I am going to be triggered and affected um and i am making a purposeful decision because i know that the work is important and that every time i might be triggered i'm also making sure that i remember there's another family out there who's whole because of the work that we do at sandy hook promise that doesn't make it worthwhile for me but it's going to keep me going forward
1: The advocacy following Sandy Hook has been an amazing thing to see over the years. Organizations have dedicated themselves to working on every aspect, including securing schools, working for better mental health resources for kids and families, even an organization dedicated to spreading love to make the world a better place.
4: Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dick, and I'm so honored to be here with the Connecticut delegation with so many tremendous friends and advocates.
1: Many of those advocates gathered last week to make the point that nine years after Sandy Hook, that promise of never again has been left unfulfilled because national politicians simply can't get together on issues like assault weapons, background checks, even safe storage laws. Maggie LaBanca and Camille Paradis are now teenagers. They are both survivors of the Sandy Hook Elementary school shooting nine years ago. They are youth advocates today for the Newtown Action Alliance, appearing with Senators Blumenthal and Murphy to call on Congress to please finish the promise of never again. Here's Maggie.
3: I've had to grow up with a trauma that I didn't fully understand, because at eight years old you can't fully understand the effect of a gun and its bullets. But nine years later, at 17 years old, I'm starting to understand. I'm starting to understand that we have yet to make substantial progress at a national level. I'm starting to fully understand, though, that we need change. We need, as Poe said, to end the filibuster because it is killing us. We need to reconsider universal background checks and we need to pass Ethan's law because as a child speaking, it's a child safety act. Because nine years later, at 17 years old, all I want is to feel safe.
1: This is Camille.
3: I left that day with unimaginable trauma and people I would never see again. And I didn't understand that and for months and years after every year I'm told never again I'm told we will never forget you and yet it seems as if the government has because I've watched it happen again and again and again and every single time it brings me back to sitting in the fire station waiting for my parents to pick me up so I'm gonna ask the government and my leaders my congressmen the senators and not just of Connecticut, but of every state in the country, to please act. I'm asking as a child for adults to do their jobs correctly, for them to protect us with national laws, to keep the guns out of dangerous people's hands, to end the filibuster, to pass Ethan's law, to pass universal background checks. I'm asking, and I hope I don't have to ask again. Are national
1: laws the answer? our Peter Haskell got on the phone with Adam Skaggs, chief counsel and policy director with the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. Giffords was founded by former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who herself was shot at a meeting of her constituents in Tucson, Arizona, back in 2011. We asked Adam Skaggs about legislative progress since Sandy Hook.
4: Well, obviously, uh, we uh as a lot of Americans, I think, were disappointed that a tragedy as horrific as uh, the, the Sandy Hook massacre would not prompt Congress uh, to take decisive action. But then the years since have seen one hard, horrible mass shooting after another. Congress still has done nothing. We've seen the last two years rates of everyday gun violence in communities across this country going up and up and up, and Congress refusing to take any action whatsoever. And just this week, the president has, again, made that call to Congress to do something about this problem. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, you know, the dysfunction and the gridlock in Congress is frustrating.
0: Uh,
4: It's frustrating for folks trying to pass meaningful legislation on guns and a whole host of other issues. Uh, But the silver lining here, so to speak,
0: uh, or
4: the good news part of the story, is that while Congress may be uh, be stuck and and unable to get out of its own way, uh, we have seen uh, progress at the state level. Uh, So Giffords Law Center tracks gun legislation, uh, whether it's bills that we uh, think are are, are good or bills that we oppose. um, And we've seen significant progress at the state level. So states have passed more than 450 laws that strengthen uh, gun safety since the Sandy Hook shooting uh, nine years ago. Uh, just this last year, we saw more than half the states, 28 states, uh, pass close to 75 strong gun laws at Washington, D.C. as well, um, and that has um, certainly not entirely made up for the inaction and uh, the failures in Congress, uh, but at least we have seen uh, leaders at the state level recognizing that they need to take action to keep their communities safe. Uh, And as I said, you know, almost getting close to 500 laws passed since Sandy Hook, uh, since the Parkland shooting in 2018, when we also saw a real uptick in attention to this issue, we've seen more than 250 laws passed. So there is progress at the state level. Uh, That's certainly good uh, for the country, good for American communities. Uh, Unfortunately, some states are taking the opposite approach and kind of pursuing a race to the bottom. Uh, where they weaken their gun laws. So, you know, just as public opinion is divided on on many of these issues related to guns, so is the sort of political approach at the state level where we have uh, certain states moving forward and certain states, uh, frankly, in my opinion, uh, going
5: backwards. Well, what's the impact if you have state laws, but you can't get federal laws passed?
4: Well, the, the result is that different parts of the country have very different gun laws. Uh, and so there's a kind of a patchwork of approaches uh, amongst the states. And what's frustrating uh, about that is that, you know, guns are uh, obviously lethal weapons, but they're also very portable. It's very easy to move them. They're not, you know, the, the, they're, they're easy to, to transport across state lines. And so what we see is states that have strengthened their gun laws to make it harder for people who are legally prohibited from getting their hands on guns. Um, Those states' efforts are frustrated when, you know, the next state across the border or even, you know, a state across the country really does very little to try and restrict uh, people who shouldn't have guns from being able to acquire them uh, because then it's very easy for people to acquire guns in those very, you know, states with very porous gun laws, transport them into states uh, that have done a better job, and that obviously undermines the effectiveness of the laws in the states with, with stronger laws. So, you know, it, it, on the East Coast, we have uh, guns being purchased in some states along the southern reaches of Route 95, uh, and then transported up the highway to states like New Jersey and New York that have much stronger laws, uh, and, that, you know, where those guns uh, purchased elsewhere really fuel the black market and pistols. It's the same dynamic across the country, you know, whether you're talking about guns being shipped from Indiana into Illinois, whether you're talking about guns moving from Nevada into California, uh, all of the efforts of the states that are taking the lead on this issue are being undermined by the states that are falling behind.
5: There was a school shooting recently in Michigan. The parents of the shooter, the alleged shooter, has been charged with manslaughter. So, a couple of things. First of all, how many states have laws that would allow that? And how important do you think it would be as a deterrent, for example, to prosecute and convict parents under these circumstances?
4: Well, um, as to your first question, you know, in theory, there are probably laws in all 50 states, whether you're talking about negligent uh, manslaughter or um, laws of that nature, that creative prosecutors could probably use to bring charges under egregious circumstances. It's a much smaller number of states that specifically have laws that talk about you know, um, allowing children to gain access to firearms. And we can talk about those laws. They take a a wide range of different forms. Um, But to the extent you're talking about, you know, negligent homicide or those kinds of things, um, you know, I think probably there are uh, laws on the books in all 50 states that in in theory could be used. Um, It's pretty rare that we see a prosecution of this sort. Um, And I think one of the reasons we are seeing it in this case is because this is just, you know, perhaps the most egregious set of facts that you can imagine, uh, and really showed the, 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 the large role the parents played in facilitating this. So whether you're talking about you know youth suicide, accidental shootings uh, of, of children, or others. Um, with guns that they get their hands on. Or in in cases like Michigan, you know, a school shooting perpetrated by a young person. The vast majority of these kinds of tragedies involve guns that are owned by a parent or family member, and that simply haven't been secured. Um, And I think in some circumstances, uh, you know, prosecutors are reluctant to charge, let's say a parent whose child has injured him or herself or accidentally shot a sibling. Um, you know, they're reluctant to charge parents because they think they've already suffered uh, with the injuries that have befallen their family members. But this is not a case where, you know, a kid happened to find an unsecured gun. This is a case where, the you know, as I understand it, the father went out and actually purchased the gun for his 15-year-old child, uh, t- intending to give it to him as a gift, uh, then when alerted by the school to these very alarming signs of trouble, uh, not only did nothing to intervene, but effectively kind of egged on the child and and, and, and really, I think, um, failed on any number of levels uh, to, to do anything. So I think they played a kind of a more active role in facilitating the behavior that culminated in the, the murder of several of his classmates, and that's why I think in a case like this you're, you're seeing prosecutors thinking, you know, we really have to set a own. We really have to set an example um, for these parents. Um, you know, there are a number of states, as I mentioned, that have laws that range from weaker laws that say basically if you intentionally give a child a gun, you can be charged uh, criminally. The stronger of these laws uh, have a, a lower standard, a negligent standard if you, you know, carelessly fail to secure a gun and a, and a, and a minor gets a hold of it. You can be charged um, with, in some cases, a misdemeanor; some cases, a felony. Um, but I think, um, while the fact patterns can really vary significantly, when you have a set of facts that are just as egregious as they are in this case, uh, I think it's appropriate uh, to uh, uh, to bring these charges. Uh, and obviously, nothing can be done to the shooter or his parents. That's going to bring back uh, the the children who have been killed, nothing's going to be able to be done to them that will eliminate the trauma uh, that all the surviving uh, schoolmates have suffered. Uh, but I do think it's important uh, to deter such incredibly irresponsible conduct in the future uh, by, by, by making an example in this case.
1: We also wanted to ask Adam Skaggs about one more topic. That idea floated by California Governor Gavin Newsom about a proposed California law that would empower private citizens to sue anyone who sells, distributes, or manufactures assault weapons or ghost guns.
4: First of all, you know, I commend Governor Newsom for uh, taking gun violence seriously. Uh, And in particular, uh, I I, I should note, I have not seen a specific bill, a specific legislative proposal. I've just sort of seen some uh, descriptions of, of, of the idea that I think he has put out there and I think it specifically focuses on assault weapons uh, and on so-called ghost guns. These are guns that are the kind of do-it-yourself guns that you can put together with a kit, uh, and the real menace of ghost guns is that you can get these kits without taking a background check uh, so that they can be obtained by minors, uh, they can be obtained by children, by people who can't legally buy a gun because they fail a background check, um, and so uh, really the dark sort of underbelly of the gun industry has gravitated to sell these so-called ghost gun kits. Um, They're called ghost guns because they don't have serial numbers and therefore they can't be traced by law enforcement. So they're very attracted to illegal gun traffickers uh, and minors. Um, And, you know, just uh, within recent weeks, there was uh, about a 48-hour period where there were you know, a kid with a ghost gun in a school in New York City uh, shooting out in the Southwest uh, at another school—a uh, a tragic incident where a 13-year-old who was building these guns within his own home and then selling them to people uh, accidentally shot and killed his 13 uh, or his sister. I, I can't recall her age. Um, so, within the span of two days, you know, three children with these ghost guns, uh, two actual shootings. One, a kid who, thankfully. Uh, the gun was taken away before there could be a shooting, uh, just in the span of two days. Um, so those are what Governor Newsom is, uh, is, is 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 focusing on, as I understand it, and I think uh, the harm that can be wrought with uh, assault weapons and the harm that is occurring every single day in this country uh, with the use of so-called ghost guns, I think is absolutely uh, something that it's important to focus on and that... You know, stronger legislation and uh, it is entirely appropriate. You know, I want to I want to perhaps distinguish a little bit about Texas abortion law uh, and this use of uh, you know private litigation in the context of what Governor Newsom is talking about. And, and the distinction I want to draw is just this: in Texas, you have a plainly unconstitutional goal. You have a plainly unconstitutional law that has the practical effect of eliminating the ability to get an abortion in Texas in all but uh, the most extraordinary circumstances. And what Texas has done is try and use this notion of sort of private bounty hunters to bring these lawsuits uh, to chill the exercise of of women's constitutional right to obtain reproductive health care. On the other hand, in California, what we've seen – Uh, is uh, at least discussions of being able to to sue not to effectuate an unconstitutional law, but to do something which is, uh, you know, courts across the country have been found is constitutional. That is to say, uh, courts across the country have said that the Second Amendment does not allow, uh, you know, an uh, untrammeled right to obtain and use assault weapons. There hasn't been any court in in the country to say, these unserialized ghost guns that are available without a background check are protected under the constitution. Uh, and so California already, uh, you know, criminalizes manufacturing assault weapons, uh, and, you know, utilizes, uh, law enforcement powers to enforce that, uh, which is something that Texas can't legally do, which is why they've come up with this crazy scheme. So, you know, I, I, I understand, uh, and, and certainly agree with and, and uh, the attention to the issue and commend the governor for thinking creatively about uh, what he can do. Um, I, I do think um, in terms of drawing parallels between uh, Texas law and, and what's being proposed in California, I think it's important to uh, to, to, to think a little carefully about that and realize that um, it's not sort of an apples to apples comparison.
1: Just this week, Connecticut Senator Blumenthal and Murphy both spoke out about a national law that would fix a loophole in FBI background checks. No word on how it will fare. In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheld, are the executive producers. Production assistance by Dempsey Pilott. Find us wherever you get your audio. Just search 880-IN-DEPTH, and we wish you a safe and happy holiday. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.
4: All-star
0: closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time?